Pastor Kim. Hey, show of hands, how many of you were here last Sunday kicking off 2020 with us? Can we give thanks to Pastor Kim for preaching through a difficult text? Such a great text. You know, uh, if you don't know, we're going through the book of Acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We started last fall, and we had planned on kicking that back up this past Sunday. And as we looked at where we were in the Acts story, there's a really um, interesting story of two people who get killed by God because of their uh, selfishness. And so we had this meeting back in November, December, uh, you know, talking about how interesting. New Year's resolutions, people either go back to church or go to church for the first time. Do we really want to, like, preach on that, you know? You know, and you could preach on, like, 10 steps to a new you in the new year, you know? And, and collectively, we just, we all felt this is God's Word, and we need to not be ashamed of it. And if there's things that we don't understand, it's because we don't understand them. And we look at the fullness of Scripture. I love how in the book of Romans it's said about God, God's desire is that none should perish, that God is a God of kindness and love and justice and mercy and grace and truth. And Pastor Kim, you did such a wonderful job handling that text. And if you missed that, amen. we got such a great team. You know, if you missed that, just a reminder that as many people are doing right now, maybe weeks or months from now, you can listen or watch to any of these sermons on our podcast, wherever you listen or watch podcasts, search for Bel Air Church, and we have about 4,000 people every week who listen or watch those uh, around the globe. And so if you're ever traveling or sick and you can't join us live on Sunday morning streaming, you can always listen to those after the fact. And in a moment, we're going to go to the next section of Acts chapter 5. But before we do so, I wanted to give you a quick financial update on how we ended 2019. If you're part of our church family, you know that we had a pretty sizable goal in the last quarter of 2019. $2.06 million was our goal that we would give as a church family in and through our ministry that would make an impact on this campus and this city and around the globe, and we surpassed that goal by $23,000. And when I say we, I mean we, because we are the church. We is not staff, we is not pastors, we are every single person, even people who are not yet members who say, this is my church family, I'm not going to treat it like a vending machine and put a little bit in and take what I want, but I'm going to treat it like a refrigerator and I'm going to stock the fridge. I'm going to invest my time and my talents and my treasure. And it's always so stressful. It's always, you know, we're like $500,000 away from the goal with like four days left. And then it's like 10 p.m. December 31st, and we're like 80000 away. And then, you know, that Friday, January 3rd, you know, it's like, well, there's still stuff in the mail, we're still behind, and then there's the weekend, and then literally we don't find out until this past Wednesday, so January 8th, finally all the checks had come in, and so finally Wednesday morning we found out that up to midnight 2019 that we surpassed our goal, as I said, by $23,000, and what that means is we don't have to think about how we reduce budget and lay off people but we can focus squarely on what we believe God has called us to in this new year, this new decade. And there's five strategic priorities that we believe God is calling our staff and our elders and our leadership to. And just so you can become aware of this, first and foremost, we want there to be, every time we gather on Sundays, to be transformational experiences as we encounter God. 
And when we're so distracted with trying to get the finances back in order, we get distracted from moments like this. Beyond that, we want to invite more and more people in the community, in our church family. We're the loneliest nation in the history of the world. And it's not just community, it's Christ-centered community that God says is the, the epicenter of transformation. And so we're longing for more and more people to experience that life-transforming community through our church family. We want to elevate our kids and students' ministry to be regarded as top in this city as more and more people in our church family are having kids or they're coming to our church because they're hearing things about our elementary programming. We want that reputation to go all the way up through even college age. We want to leverage our campus. What a campus we have. And it's not just ours. It's for the city. And we want to leverage our campus to be a blessing for the city in ways that line up with who we are and what we're all about. And fifthly, finally, we want to do everything with financial excellence. We want to be good stewards with what God has given us, not on this campus, but beyond our campus in the city and around the globe. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your prayers, your generosity, your faithfulness. Sometimes uh, people give once a year. Sometimes people give, like my wife and I, every single paycheck. However you give, may God bless you as you step out in faith. And I'm just so joy-filled knowing that we get to start a new decade together in the financial black, positive, so we can focus on what God has for us. All right, you ready for God's Word? I need it today. So why don't we go to Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, no problem, that red book in the pew in front of you is our pew Bible. And we'd love for you to take it home with you if you don't have a Bible. Also... There's a great free app that I use. Some people refer to it as the Bible app or version. You can download it for free, every translation uh, seemingly in the world, almost every language, and there's Bible reading plans. You know, if you want to read through the Bible in a year, if you want to find a topical study, it's a great, great resource. And if you're online, I'm reading Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the story of what the Spirit of God did in the early church. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but... The people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word. So I've got two points. This is going to be a shorter sermon, two points. Some of you take notes uh, on your phone, some on paper. Uh, The first is this. What the Spirit of God was doing back then. Second point, what the Spirit of God is doing today. So let's just go verse by verse and just kind of walk through what 
the Spirit of God was doing back then. Uh, Verse 12, now many signs and wonders. Let's, Let's pause right there. The gospel according to Mark. You see, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the three public years of his ministry. They wrote down eyewitness accounts of what uh, Jesus did. And Mark's gospel account has more reference to signs and wonders than Matthew and Luke and John combined. Everywhere Jesus goes, as you look at the four different angles at the life of Jesus, everywhere Jesus went, the kingdom of God was experienced. Jesus can say the kingdom of God is here, and now the kingdom of God is at hand. And he even taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. God, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so the experience of God's kingdom is the experience of God's presence here and now. It's heaven breaking into the present. And Scripture says that in God's presence, in the new heavens and the new earth, in God's presence even right now, there's no sadness, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no decay, there's no traffic, there's no depression, there's no gluten intolerances, there's, there's nothing in God's presence that is contrary to God's heart and God's design for God's creation. And so when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, of Capernaum, of Bethany. The experience of God's reign, God's kingship, God's rule was seen, was felt. Sight was given to the blind. The lame began to walk. Lepers were miraculously healed. The dead were raised to life. People who were excluded in culture were brought in, women primarily, foreigners, prostitutes, those people, sinners. Wherever Jesus went, the experience of God's kingdom came here on earth and signs and wonders marked and gave witness to the inbreaking of God's spirit and the inbreaking of God's presence. And it gave weight It gave credence to the ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ, and yet Jesus died, and yet he was buried. And Scripture says he defeated death. He rose from the grave. He was observed by over 500 people. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and as we've been studying the book of Acts, Jesus, from the right hand of the Father, pours out the Holy Spirit to the first disciples, the first followers of Jesus, and then... The same signs and wonders that were experienced in Jesus' ministry began to be experienced through the ministry of the church. The exact same healings, the exact same miracles were happening in the first century. And right here, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, says, now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. These leaders, these first followers of Jesus, At this point, there's 11 of them. Judas was one of the apostles. We know how that went for him. He betrayed Jesus. He took his life. Uh, They haven't yet in the narrative chosen the one who would replace Judas. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But God was doing a powerful work through the apostles among all the people, and signs and wonders were happening. But take a look at this. It says, they were all together in Solomon's portico. Some translations say Solomon's porch. How many of you have ever been to Jerusalem? 
I've never been. I so want to go. People all the time are like, you, you have to go. You have to see this. And so some of you, if you've been, maybe it brings back memories. And, I, and I've looked at maps. I've seen pictures. I've seen, I've seen drawings. Well, Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico is a, a section of the temple that Solomon built in the 10th century B.C., The Chaldeans came and they tried to desecrate the temple, but they left portions of it. And ultimately, when King Herod rose to power, he extended Solomon's temple a bit. But Solomon's porch is on the east side of Solomon's temple, which originally was built as a perfect square. And Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, says that, yeah, it was Solomon who built this massive structure. And if you imagine this covered with columns, colonnade, porch, extending out to the east of Solomon's temple. And here's what's fascinating. Uh, This area to the east, facing the east, actually looks out over the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Darkness. If some of you know the story of the betrayal of Jesus, the night Jesus was betrayed after he instituted the Lord's Supper, he crossed through the Valley of Darkness, the Kidron Valley, on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where ultimately he was arrested. And so this Solomon's porch is literally overlooking the scene in which Jesus ultimately was arrested. What's fascinating, too, is, you know, at the time, in the first century, there was sections of this temple. In fact, there was an area called the Court of Women. In the first century, it was the only place women were allowed to go. They weren't given freedom to go to all the other parts of the temple, and they were kind of uh, blockaded off, sadly. Not at all God's heart. There was also the Court of the Gentiles, where non-Jewish foreigners could gather, but they weren't allowed to cross over a, a particular walled-off section to get into the interior area. In fact, uh, archaeologists have found, this is so fascinating, a sign, an inscription on the wall from the Court of the Gentiles that goes, some of you might know this, and, and, and the sign says this. It says, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade, it's the wall, and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. I mean, imagine trying to show up to a place to belong, to to worship, to offer sacrifices, and there's a sign clearly saying, if you cross over, you're gonna die, and it's your fault. I mean, we have signs in our sanctuary, but it's, would you put a a lid on your coffee so we can take, you know, but, but imagine if we had those kind of signs. Why do I bring all this up? What's so fascinating is that the early church didn't abandon the whole temple and then rush off and cloister themselves in private. They gathered in the most public place of all. But Solomon's porch was connected to the court of women. It was perfectly adjacent to it. And the early church said, women and men, come. You belong. You were part of the family. Culture has so distorted what God has created. We are one in Christ. And so it clearly says here that women and men were part of the church in the early 
early years. And this was outside the court of the Gentiles. So it wasn't just Jewish people who could belong. It was everybody. And it was in one of the most public places of all in such a strategic way that before we even get to the big headlines of the signs and wonders and the healing and the miraculous works, simply the place where they gathered meant hope and healing to a lot of people. Just walking in meant hope and healing to women and Gentiles. We have to understand that. There's like the big headlines and there's like the page 13 in the newspaper. There's things that are on the front that are big and they just, they, they're the things that things talk about, but there's the under the layer, under the surface, little details that the Spirit of God was moving in such a miraculous way that we will never know the fullness of how God extended hope and healing to all those people back then. It goes on. Take a look at this. Verse 13, none of the rest. Who are the rest? You know, a lot of scholars debate over this. And, you know, in my study, it seems to be that the rest, it's a different word than the people. It's a different word than the apostles. Uh, it seems to be that there was a whole group of people who were still going about their lives as if Jesus wasn't still alive. There was people who were still wrapped up in the sacrificial Jewish system. They were still showing up and they were still doing their, their feasts and their festivals and they were still trying to do all the things in the, in the Hebrew covenant, in the Hebrew scriptures, and they hadn't yet realized that Jesus had come as the Messiah who was extending hope and healing to all people, who was the ultimate sacrifice that put to death the sacrificial system. And so imagine this, there was all these followers of Jesus, Gentiles, women, men, people from all over, saints and sinners, they were all gathered together and they were literally passing by people who were marching in doing religion. And the rest that were caught up in the religiosity of it all didn't dare join those that was all about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I just find it so fascinating that all this was happening right next to one another. That in this very public place, there was people coming for relationship and there was people coming for religion. And it would have been wrong to assume back then that everybody who gathered in that public place had a relationship with the living God. And yet it was very public. Again, it wasn't cloistered away, and listen to this. It says, even though the rest dared not to join them, the people held them in high esteem. The first followers of Jesus had a good reputation. They were respected. They were regarded. Even among people who did not yet believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they looked at these people, how they lived, how they loved, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the healing that was taking place. The class structure, socioeconomic, gender barriers were broken down and everybody was experiencing the oneness of a community in Christ and people held them in high esteem. Again, I find this so remarkable that they didn't go off and do their own thing and hide from everybody else, but in a very public way, in a very bold way, in a very loving way, in a very generous way, in a very humble way, in a very true way, they follow Jesus, and people held them in high regard. Verse 14, yet more than ever, more than ever, 
That's such an interesting phrase, more than ever. We've already heard about like 3,000 people coming to faith just because of one sermon by Peter. So we have no idea what the numbers are at this point. It says now more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on... I mean, just to picture, try to picture this. All this activity was happening. And they literally began to bring and carry out the sick onto the streets. As it says here, they were hoping that Peter's shadow might just fall on some of them as he came by. Now, this has nothing to do with Peter. This has nothing to do with Peter's shadow. This is not some, you know, larger-than-life dude that just had some sort of special anointing that just his shadow caused. No, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And for whatever reason, God chose at this point in time to do such a miraculous work that it says here that all were cured, all were healed. Now, whenever we read this, I, I raise questions. Maybe you raise questions. Well, did God heal everyone back then? No. You think about it this way. I didn't say this in the 9 o'clock. Every single one of these people who were cured eventually died. Right? Like all of them were cured and then they died. Do you think any of those great number of people who were cured, who came to faith, had people pray for them before they died and they still died? Of course. And yet Scripture says that when God begins a good work in you through Jesus Christ, this is Philippians 1.6, he will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And if you experience healing now, praise God. And if that healing goes away and eventually you die, that's okay because Jesus has defeated death and ultimately you will be resurrected with a new body, fully spirit, fully physical in the new heavens and the new earth and you're not gonna have to wait for that. It's in the twinkling of an eye to be absent from the body, Scripture says, is to be present with the Lord, and you will experience the fullness and the true healing that your healing now here on earth was just a shadow to, it just pointed to. And so some of us are like, well, why aren't I healed, and how come they're not healed, and I've been praying for healing? God works in mysterious ways, and I'm realizing that's not a cop-out answer, that's just the truth. And they were a community of people that the Spirit of God chose at that point in that time to do such a significant work and hope and healing was experienced by thousands of people. Second point, what is the Spirit of God doing here and now? The same things are happening. And it's not just in Jerusalem. It's spread to the ends of the earth. And we gathered here today in the beginning of 2020 are just part of the global and the historical church. And we, just as a local expression of the body of Christ, have experienced not only in our 63-year history, as I'm finding out more and more, of signs and wonders and miracles that have happened over the last 63 years, but we've seen in the last three months, since really the beginning of October, just this uptick, this upswelling, it seems like, of the Spirit of God healing people in our church family. That's why tonight at the 6 p.m. we're gonna have people share stories of just personally how they've experienced this. 
I had something happen over the winter break. And I'm going to share tonight. I'm not going to share it right now because I want you to come back tonight, you know. (laughs) But I can't describe it other than this is just a very powerful healing of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I, I just can't describe it any other way. And I'll share that tonight. Now, here's what's so fascinating is that right now, as we start 2020, I sense that there's people who are longing for hope and they're longing for healing, not just in our church family, but in our cities, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, and our family. And because we're human, because we see the brokenness around us, because we sometimes sadly see leaders of the church wield the Spirit of God in unhealthy ways, this is the way I would phrase it, we hedge hope. You know, I'm not a, uh, a gambler, but I know that, uh, you know, you can hedge your bets. You've heard that phrase before. Kind of to cover yourself in case, you know, what you really hope for doesn't happen, what you really, you know, bet on doesn't happen. You can hedge your bets and place a bet on something else so that you can kind of fall back on that. And I see, and I do it sometimes too, we hedge hope. We don't hope that God will heal us in a profoundly miraculous way because what if God doesn't? And so it's so much easier to just not hope. And I really believe that God is saying, stop that, Drew. Stop that, church. Because when you hedge hope, You were trying to play, Drew and church, you were trying to play God. And you were trying to control things in such a way that you're even trying to control your emotional response to how you will react to something that may or may not even happen. And so you try to live in this cloistered, private, milk toast, bland existence That isn't the reason why Jesus came and lived and loved and died and rose again from the grave to give you his spirit. And so I am committed to, as we start 2020, to hope like everything depends on God, because it does. And I'm going to hope for healing, and I'm going to pray for healing, and I'm going to believe for healing. And I'm not just talking about physical healing. I'm talking about the healing of social structures, the healing of relationships, the healing of broken systems, the healing of how we see one another, the healing of perceptions, psychological, emotional, financial, all the ways in which God's kingdom wants to be experienced. And if I don't yet experience it or see it to its fullness of what God ultimately is going to do, it builds my trust and builds my faith. But at the end of the day, I'd rather God say, well... Wow, you were bold and trusting rather than, why didn't you trust in me? I gotta tell you, over the winter break, last couple weeks, I've never received more emails from other pastors in Los Angeles saying, Drew, we heard some stuff is going down at Bellar Church. Like, we heard there's like healing and miracles. There's miracles and healing happening in our churches. Can we get together and can we talk? Can we pray about this? 
Never in my 20 years of following Jesus, this year's going to be 20 years since I gave my life to Christ as part of this church as a college student at USC. In 20 years, I've never seen this before, but all these pastors are reaching out and they're saying, and here's what's amazing. Since the beginning of October, these pastors are saying, that's when we had that, that service in the beginning. There's this work that the Spirit of God is doing in Los Angeles that is far bigger than what you see around you, far more than the stories you're going to hear tonight. And there's churches, Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran, non-denominational, Pentecostal, across the board, church plants, churches that have been around for a long, long time. The Spirit of God is doing something new. And I believe it's not just here in Los Angeles, I believe it's around the globe. And so back then, the Spirit of God was doing signs and wonders through the people in Solomon's porch. And that looks differently across the globe. You know, the church in Tehran right now, the followers of Jesus there, I wonder what God wants to do in and through them. I wonder what kind of signs and wonders God wants to do through the church in Tehran right now. I think about in Australia right now. I wonder what the church is going to be used to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I challenge you, start watching the news, and rather than getting caught up in the headlines and just the things that are happening, start thinking about what is, what's the church being called to in those places, the followers of Jesus, because now this is global. This isn't just Jerusalem. It's not just here in Los Angeles. This is around the globe. The Spirit of God longing for people to be open, to be led and moved by the Holy Spirit, to be instruments of hope and healing to everyone around them. And so as we begin 2020, I'm ready and I'm not ready for the Spirit of God to do a powerful thing through us. I'm ready in the sense that I'm hungry for it. I'm anticipating. I'm praying for it. I'm longing for it. And I'm not ready in the sense that I have no idea what we're doing. Like, I, I, we're human. I have no experience in this area. And so what does that leave me? It leaves me in this very vulnerable, humble, deeply trusting God place where I just say, okay, Spirit of God, move in me in such a way that I, that we, can simply be used by you, Spirit of God, to extend hope and healing in the ways that you, God, define hope and healing to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family. May people come to know Jesus, you, as as your Lord and Savior. So I'm hungry for that. I know you are too. So let's start this new decade together, expectant of that. Let's pray. Jesus, you are high and lifted up at the right hand of the Father right now. We are your people. Scripture, you refer to us, Jesus, as your body, your bride. We are ambassadors for you, Jesus, and your kingdom. And so would you move in our hearts in such a way through the power of your spirit, move in our minds, to call us to be bold publicly for you in such a way that people would 
ultimately glorify you, ultimately come to know you as Lord and Savior, but we would do so in such a way that people would hold us in high esteem because we do it with respect and with love and with grace and with truth. So Spirit of God, bear fruit in our lives that is your fruit. Jesus, we thank you for your love and it's in your name we pray and we say together, amen.